0: week three of our look at Daniel chapters 7 through 12 first two weeks have been really heavy prophecy stuff we got through that and today we get a break today as we follow the text we get 23 verses that you just heard read in English and also in Hebrew uh, of prayer it's Daniel's prayer to God as we're gonna see in a second here as they're just heading back into the promised land But don't worry, next week we get right back into prophecy, really tough prophecy, and uh, so this is just a little bit of a reprieve, but really, really an awesome uh, parenthesis, if you will, but really the heart of it, as uh, Daniel models a prayer before us. And so we're going to unpack this right now, and as we do, why don't we ourselves pray. God, you are good, you are great, you are awesome. You can be no other. Um, We have sung to you for the first 25 minutes of our time here this morning. And Lord, you know, my prayer has been that as we've done that, we will have recognized your goodness, who you are. We will have recognized your acts, what you have done. And now be prepared, Lord, to uh, focus on you in such a way that we can understand you deeper in our lives. And so I pray that as we unpack these 23 verses of. Daniel's prayer here, that, God, you might catch some of us off guard, even change us, alter our paradigm. May we see you differently and certainly how we function in our Christian lives differently. Thanks for our time together. Bless this time in your word. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was officially candidating for the position of senior pastor here at Scottsdale Bible Church uh, three summers ago, back in the summer of 2007, I was asked three questions by congregants that as I look back on them were very non-pastoral and had nothing to do with the job of senior pastor. The first question that I was asked was whether I thought LeBron James was a better basketball player than Steve Nash. (laughs) The second question that I was asked was whether I was a hunter or not. Look up here on the screen for the answer to that one. That's me on your bottom left back in the 1990s. I hunted twice back then. I didn't share this when I was asked this before three years ago, but I was at a hunter's club there with three of my buddies from my church there, and those are some birds that we got there. So I guess one could say that I am a hunter, at least by that picture. The only thing deceptive about that picture, however, is that I've only hunted twice in my entire life, both with these men, I don't own a gun, and it was actually kind of hilarious because when I was hunting with them, they told me that if I lowered my gun one more time and accidentally shot the dog, I would have to pay them $10,000. So I guess one could say I'm, I'm not much of a hunter, and they haven't invited me back since then. And the third non-spiritual and non-pastoral question that I was asked was whether or not I play golf. Imagine that, somebody in Scottsdale wondering if I played golf. And uh, there's a picture of me back in the uh, 90s again in my first pastorate holding a golf club looking all professional. And the answer is that uh, yes, I do play golf, but as some of you have found out in the last three years, not very well. In fact, I don't have time to play golf. I tease my pastor friends that are scratch golfers. I say you obviously don't preach very well. You obviously don't lead the church very well, because if you did, you wouldn't have time for this game. But I do love the game. I love the game of golf. I try to play it whenever I can. It's fun to be out with friends, and and it's a great sport. I, I enjoy it. Now let's focus for a second on golf, because this can going to have everything to do with where we're going this morning. For any of you who have played golf, and there's a lot of you that have here in Scottsdale and Phoenix, you know that the optimal goal in golf, the, the optimal score, is to shoot par, And for those of you who don't know, par is where the designer of the course or the rules of the game say that you should be able to get the ball in the hole in four shots, and if you make it in four shots, you have gotten par. And it's the same on the three-shot and the five-shot holes. And the goal of this is obviously to do this on all 18 holes and end up with a score of 72 for most regulation golf courses, and as the old saying goes, that would be par for the course that's golf. It's a great game, a frustrating game, even an addicting game for some people. But the goal is to become a scratch golfer to be able to shoot par or better. That's what everybody's shooting for. And yet what I have noticed, and tell me if this isn't true, is that most amateur golfers, even a lot of amateur golfers who play regularly and a lot, do not become scratch golfers. In other words, they don't shoot par or better on average. They might shoot 85, they might shoot 80, they might shoot in the upper 70s. But I've been playing this game for 20 years now, and again, on an amateur level, almost everybody I play with never reaches par on a regular basis. No, that's left for another category of golfers, those that we call the professionals, those that play for their livelihood, those that play as their vocation rather than their avocation. And when you do this, you get a PGA card, you join the professional golf association, and they're the ones who tend to reach par on a much more regular basis than the more voluminous group of people, the amateur group. And so don't miss this, folks. Golf, like so many areas of life, is clearly split between those who are really good at it, the pros, And then those who are just doing it for leisure or sport the amateurs and in answering the question directly that i was asked earlier three years ago do i play golf i do and i'm in the very low end of the amateur group that's how i would describe myself now this idea of pro versus amateurs is fine for golf and it's fine for many other areas of life as well and yet the problem comes in is when we drag this distinction into our spiritual walk with God. And well-meaning Christians do it all the time. And so tell me if this isn't true. When we think of what it takes to follow God in this fallen world to develop a robust and active spiritual life, we tend to think of things like this. you got to read the Bible on a regular basis. you got to practice prayer on a regular basis. You need to serve God with your gifts and passions. You need to spend time with lots of Christians. You need to learn to share your faith with others. You need to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit to successfully combat sin and temptation. And then you need to learn to love others sacrificially. These are the things that Christians do in order to develop a strong walk with the Lord. Bible, prayer, service, fellowship, evangelism, obedience, and love. And yet over the years, we notice that some people tend to do these things better than others. For our purposes this morning, some people tend to get closer to par on these, on these things than others do. And when this ten- happens, we tend to make the ones who are really good at it. Now tell me if this isn't true. We make them pastors, teachers, parachurch leaders, and seminary professors. And before you know it, we've developed two categories of Christians, the professionals, who we think shoot par on a regular basis, and then the rest of us, who might shoot in the low 80s or the upper 70s, but that's about the extent of our Christian life. In other words, we follow the world's pattern in developing this professional versus amateur distinction in the church and with our Christianity, and what you need to know, folks, is that this does great disservice to the teachings of the Bible and to the entire teachings of Jesus, in which you will be hard-pressed to find these distinctions. They don't exist, and worse it makes us think that when it comes to the things that make up a robust Christian walk, that the average Christian in the pew is never going to shoot par. By relegating this stuff to the seminary professors, the pastors, the parachurch leaders, the elders, we tend to think then that the average person in the pew is okay if they're shooting bogey golf when it comes to their Christian life. And so this artificial distinction keeps the average follower of Jesus from ever really thinking that he or she can walk with God as their leaders do. And nowhere is this more pronounced than with the issue of prayer. I'm telling you, it's where it really shines. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, I'm just not very strong in my prayer life, Jamie. I mean i read the bible okay i serve well i hang out with other christians regularly even the ones that i don't like i've kicked a few habits with the holy spirit's help over the years but you know i just always seem to to fall short in my prayer life i seem to be kind of a double bogey kind of guy when it comes to prayer how many times have you heard people say something similar to that my guess is a lot i hear it a lot and again we expect the experts to be strong I mean, we expect Daryl and Wayne and Fred and John Politon and Pat and Jamie to be strong in prayer. But for the rest of us, the non professionals, I guess we're never going to be scratch prayers when it comes to our spiritual life with God. And it's a tragedy, folks. It's a huge tragedy. Because not only do we rob people of intimacy with God through prayer, not only do we rob people of seeing his movement in their lives through prayer, not only do we rob people of helping others around them through prayer, but we miss the fact that God wants all of us, and I mean each and every one of us, to have the kind of prayer life in which we are confident in and find great spiritual success in listen folks if you don't hear anything else this morning with this very long introduction please hear this the christian life was meant for you to play par golf in and nowhere is that more true than when it comes to this thing called prayer and so here's what i want to do in our time remaining this morning i want to help all of us achieve par when it comes to our prayer life and daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 23 the passage that was read earlier is going to be our guide it's a really good chapter on prayer it's Daniel's prayer modeled right here for you and I give me a click here guys it's the prayer he prayed in 539 BC right on the cusp of the Jewish people getting to go back to their homeland Israel and rebuild their city and their temple they've been held captive in Babylon for the last 70 years And as we mentioned last week, Cyrus is now the king. He's called Darius here in chapter 9. And as Jeremiah had predicted in his prophecy in chapter 25, verses 11 through 12, a prophecy that, by the way, Daniel himself had read, he predicted that after 70 years, the captivity would end. And sure enough, now at the 70-year mark, the Jews are going to be free again. Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, has agreed to allow the Jews to return home and to rebuild their lives. And so Daniel prays. It's a good time to pray. And contained in this prayer is a threefold progression, three steps, if you will, that build one upon the other on how to pray. Don't miss this, folks. I'm going to show you here this morning that contained in Daniel's prayer is a model, a pattern, a progression for you and I on how we can pray in such a way that we might start to get some traction in our talking with God. How you and I can pray each moment of each day or in our formal times or with other people or with our families or in the office or at school. In such a way that we start to model what we see in some of the more godly people in the old and new testament and in this kind of praying you're gonna attain par and so let me just give you these three things that build one upon the other right up front it's in your outline anyways and that is using the acrostic par they are that you praise you admit and you request that's that simple you praise god You admit your sin, and then you request certain things from Him. Now, don't tune me out here this morning, folks. I know how some of you think. You think, I've heard this before. I've been down this road before. I know the acts, acrostic, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. This just seems like it's stolen from that. This is actually better. But anyways, the reality is is that I want you to hang in here because we're going to unpack this in such a way that I think you're going to see... Some different things in this. So first, you need to begin your praying to Almighty God with praise. With praise. Notice how Daniel begins his prayer in chapter 9 here. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is so revealing. He says, "...then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes." I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, folks, don't miss a few key things here that scream to you and me how we need to begin our prayers to God. First Daniel refers to God as the Lord God there in verse 3, and then the Lord my God in verse 4. Do you see that there? Lord God in verse 3 and Lord my God in verse 4. That first phrase, Lord God, in the original Hebrew that you heard read earlier, is the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. You might have picked it up a couple times when the Hebrew is being read, I did, Adonai, Adonai, Adonai. It's used often in this prayer. And interestingly, that word literally means owner, ruler, or sovereign one. And so Daniel is beginning his entire prayer recognizing and declaring that God is the sovereign ruler, the owner of the universe, and his life as well then he calls god the lord my god it's the hebrew word yahweh or jehovah and it's god's covenant name with israel and so it's daniel's way of saying i praise you the covenant keeping god for your faithfulness in keeping it with me and with the other fellow jews fascinating. Nowhere else in all of Daniel, you can't find it, does he use the name Yahweh for God and yet he uses it seven times in this prayer here in Daniel chapter 9. I think he's telling something to us here. He's saying praise God for his covenant. And Then Daniel is fasting during this prayer and he's wearing sackcloth, which are simply old ragged clothes in Old Testament times, which are simply Old Testament ways of showing humility and earnestness before God. And then as if all of this were not enough, Daniel then declares overtly two things about God in the substance of his prayer that do nothing but ring the bell of praise. He declares who God is and what he has done. Did you catch it? He says in verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God. He's simply declaring who God is. But we all know that word great means. It means excellent, powerful, supreme, amazing. And that word awesome here, interestingly, is the Hebrew word nara, that literally means one who inspires fear. So kind of like when you see some powerful act of nature like a hailstorm in the desert. Did you all catch that a few weeks ago? Okay, so like I'm here at the church. It's 3 15. I'm in a meeting. All of a sudden we hear the rain come. We think, oh good rain. We open up the blinds and it's not rain. It's like hail the size of golf balls. And you know what's so cool is that that morning I knew it was going to rain. So I told my wife I didn't want to drive my car to work. Let me take hers. And I did. (laughs) True story. So I'm sitting there watching my wife's Poor car just getting pelted, you know, with these these. Uh, it's totally destroyed with these. Uh, you know, what is it? Ice. I mean, just it's in the desert, and we all ran outside. And and isn't this how we function many times when it comes to to, to nature? We just stood there looking at this hailstorm like this, just with our our, our mouth open. just speechless. What is it? It's called jaw dropping awe. We were in awe at nature that day and that's exactly what daniel is saying that he does when he looks at god he's in awe of who he is a little fear even there it's kind of like wow this is so powerful he's in awe of god he's saying god you are great and you are awesome then in verse 4b he says god who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments in other words he's praising god for what he has done he's declaring that god is always faithful to his word always loving to his people and so add all this up folks daniel calls on god with names of praise adonai the sovereign one yahweh the covenant-keeping god He humbles himself in praise with fasting and sackcloth. Then he declares praise about God, declaring who he is and what he has done. In short, he's doing all of this before any request, before any confession of sin goes out. He makes sure that he begins his entire praying with praise. And I would submit to you that he's hitting par right from the very first tee box and that there's something in this for you and me that when we come to pray to God, I know how many of us do, we go right to petitions, we go right to requests, we go right to supplication. and We think God is thrilled that we just came to Him because we haven't come to Him very often. Please realize, folks, the biblical pattern is to begin with praise. Calm your heart, focus your mind, center yourself on Him. Let Him know who He is, what He has done, what you think of Him let me ask you when you pray to god do you begin by praising him first it's the right way to begin praying it's the way to pray par i don't know if you notice or not but many many times when i pray just two or three minutes before my message which i do just about every sunday with you guys i almost always tell god something about him that i appreciate i almost always tell him thank you for allowing us to sing to you to talk to you you are good you can be no other I almost always thank him for what he has done for his grace for his goodness for his sovereignty for his care why because 30 years ago when i became a christian somebody taught me that this is how you pray and it's just become natural for me maybe this will help some of you this illustration How many of you have heard the old piece of advice that if you're going to share a negative or critical word with someone, that you should first share three or four positive things? You ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you have. Good. Just about every one of you, you've taken those classes. And and that really is a good thing to do. I learned that in my 20s, that if I was going to share a negative with somebody, whether it be a coworker or my wife or somebody like that, that I better have three or four positives first because it will help soften and pave the way for the negative. I think that's very similar to what Daniel's doing here. Way before he shares any confession of sin, way before he shares any personal request before God, which are almost always difficult things, he first shares three or four powerful truisms about God in the form of praise that do nothing but establish between him and God why God is good, how good God is good. And it focuses Daniel's heart and mind on him and readies him for the next leg of the journey in prayer folks begin your prayers with praise you can never do enough praise when it comes to God now once you've begun your words to God with praise you're now ready to move on to the second very cleansing and focusing aspect of prayer and that is that you admit you admit and specifically you admit your sin and so isn't it interesting that for the next 11 verses of Daniel 9, 11 verses, which takes up more than a third of this entire chapter, Daniel confesses his and his people's sin before God. He admits his shortcomings and asks for forgiveness from, them, from God for them. And so look at verses 5 to 6 for a Cliff Notes version of this confession. Daniel says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. This is powerful stuff here, folks. Uh, with details missing from most people's confessions today, Daniel lists no less than six specific ways, I put them up there for you in yellow, that he and his people have failed God. God. Six ways with details there that I'll show you here. Just tell the entire story of what he's trying to confess here that you and I don't want to miss. He says we have sinned. It's the Hebrew word hatah, which simply means to miss the mark. He's saying that me and my people have totally missed it, God, when it comes to following you. And then he says that they have done wrong. The Hebrew word there literally means twisted. The idea being that God put them on a straight road. They messed it up by going through all these little crooked paths. And then he says that they acted wickedly. That term was used back then to denote a legal crime before an innocent party. You get the picture. He then confesses that they have rebelled and turned aside from God's commandments, His rules, His law. And then he caps it all off by admitting that they have not listened to God through His chosen mouthpieces, the prophets. And folks, if you know your Old Testament history at all, and many of you do, you know what Daniel's confessing here. He's specifically confessing that all throughout the divided kingdom, since the days of Saul, David, and Solomon, that he and the people have consistently fallen into idol worship. They've ignored God's commandments and the law, not even keeping the simple Ten Commandments. They have grieved the heart of God by not following him as he outlined in the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. And though we read the rest of the confession earlier, it goes all the way up through verse 15, it basically restates with even more detail the crux of Daniel's opening confession here in verses 5 and 6. And what I want you to see more than anything else here, folks, is that as Daniel follows up his praise with admitting to God his and his people's sin, he does so with specificity with details that simply lay out before God the sin that has kept he and his people from him. It's the details that I need you to see. The fact that he was not covering his sin, but saying, here's specifically what we've done, here's how we've done it, forgive us, O God. And what you need to know is that the New Testament tells us as now followers of Jesus, redeemed in his blood, forgiven of all of our sin, Interesting, the New Testament tells us to do the same thing. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. This is fascinating. New Testament, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess our sin. Lay it out before God. Lift them one by one to Him, and you'll be cleansed. And don't misunderstand, folks. It doesn't mean that our sins are not already forgiven as followers of Jesus. They are based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven. But what confession does here is cleanse our soul before Him. It gets the garbage out of the way between us and Him so that full fellowship with Him might be received. I've given you this illustration before, but it's no different with your kids. I mean, your kid is your kid no matter what. You're always going to forgive your kid. And yet if your kid sins against you, does something that really hurts you, There's a wedge now between you and your kid in that moment, right? I mean, give me a head nod that you guys get that. That's true. And so though you love your kid and you're not going to shun your kid, there's a relational wedge because of their sin. And until they confess that, until they humble themselves, until they ask for forgiveness and start to relate to you again, that wedge is still there. That's what 1 John 1.9 is telling us with God. Yeah, he's forgiven us all of our sins in Christ for those of us who are followers of him, but sin can still create a wedge, relationally distant between us and him. Confession bridges that gap. And in the process of prayer, following the path laid out for us in Daniel 9, we are to do this, don't miss this, folks, right on the coattails of praise before we get to any requests or petitions where to confess our sins before God. I love how Stephen Miller in his commentary on Daniel 9 puts it when he says and I quote only after the Lord is praised and sin confessed is the believer qualified to offer requests to God and he's right but do this and you're gonna be shooting par in your prayers on the front nine and folks the uncomplicated way that you and I do this on a daily basis And many Christians are afraid to do this, but you got to do this is simply to take a regular moral inventory of your life. And I'm talking about your actions, your feelings, your thoughts, and even your motives, and then lay them out before God in prayer. And when you do this, it'll do nothing but purge the crud that has crept in between him and you since the last time that you prayed. so let me ask you very practically, since you woke up this morning, or maybe if you're really godly, let's just go back a couple days since the start of the weekend. Since the start of the weekend or since this morning, in the last six to 48 hours, as you take a moral inventory of your life right now, what has crept in between you and God that you could confess in your prayers before Him? You see, now we're starting to get somewhere. Most people when they think of confession think of that old Catholic confessional booth where you go in once a year and just list three or four big ones that you did over the last year, right? But the reality is is that that's not what the Bible's getting at here. No, the Bible's talking about the fact that on a regular basis, at least daily, if not more, you do a moral inventory of your life on a more minute level and then lay those things out before God. So you got to dig a little deeper than the once-a-year routine. In other words, go back to the last six to 48 hours. Maybe you weren't completely truthful to a friend or a spouse when you were telling a story to them or sharing something with them. Maybe you allowed anger to creep in and lead you to think or say something to someone that wasn't exactly Christ-like. Maybe you spent money that you didn't have over the weekend in a moment of greed, or maybe you ate too much last night out of anxiousness. Maybe you allowed your mind to wander to places that you know is not good for your soul. Maybe you coveted your neighbor's house, field, ox or donkey, which is the 10th commandment and in Scottsdale means your neighbor's new addition, second home, BMW or road bike. I mean, you gotta dig deep here, folks you got to dig deep when it comes to the last six to 48 hours. There's so many things that have crept into your life moment by moment and simply see shooting for par simply means that you admit those things before God and get them out, get them out, so that He can then say, I love you, I forgive you, relationship restored. And again, I know how some of you think, and I'm empathetic to this. Some of you have come from really strict Catholic backgrounds or really legalistic protestant backgrounds both are the same quite frankly in one sense and that is that you were whacked over the head as a kid with sin all the time and right now you're starting to think here we go again jamie i'm picturing you as a nun or i'm picturing you as my legalistic pastor from my childhood and you're harping on sin you're making me feel guilty about it, I didn't come in feeling guilty but i'm going to leave feeling guilty and i just don't know if i want to go there again that's how some of you are thinking right now Listen to me closely. We're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about a nun hitting you over the fingers with a ruler. What we're talking about here is an honest, authentic, moral inventory, not in the gray area issues, not about whether the movie last night was PG or PG 13. That's between you and God. No, we're talking about the, the normal, everyday things. Think of the list I just ran by you things like lying. Things like gluttony, things like greed, things like coveting. I mean, those are the big issues, folks. My simple point is that they creep in more often than we want to realize. And please see, we're not talking about heaping more guilt on you. Get this. I'm talking about heaping more freedom upon you. Because when you learn what 1 John 1-9 is really saying here, think about it. If you confess those, if you have the guts to admit that to God... He says in that moment he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, Wilson, I know you have. I have. I experience that every moment of every day. I I was driving home from Flagstaff yesterday getting kind of competitive with the other drivers, even cursing a couple people once or twice. Honestly, I'm not proud of that. And I didn't swear at him because that would be too overt, but I used some marginal words in my mind. And I'm telling you, that after about five minutes of that, I thought, Rasmussen, think about what you're doing. You're a follower of Jesus. You're a pastor. And right then, I just, I just threw it up to God. I said, God, help me to chill out. Forgive me for doing that. That's just not right. It's not becoming of a follower of you. Now, did I sit there and go, gosh, I'm a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. No, I didn't do any of that. I confessed it to him. I let it go, and I moved on. And I experienced that freedom that he has for us when we admit our sin that's what we're talking about here i think that's how daniel experienced it here and so you praise and you admit and then once you have done this you're ready for the third step in the progression of praying to god and that is that you now request you request certain things of him now listen close Though you can request any and all things before God, I mean, he's an equal opportunity receiver, if you will. Let's look closely for a minute at the kind of things that Daniel requests in his prayer here, because I think this will help us in how we request from God. Look at verses 16 to 19. Daniel says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those all who are around us. Now, therefore, Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, though there is a lot here, folks, various requests and petitions, for our purposes this morning, what I would like you to notice more than anything else is the absolute relational nature of Daniel's requests here? The relational nature of requests. I'm just saying, "What are you, what are you talking about?" Uh, notice that he says, "Let your anger and your wrath go away. Don't be angry with us anymore. Listen to us and our pleas for mercy. Make your face shine upon us again. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our need. Forgive and pay attention to us, folks. This is rich." These are relational terms being employed here. They're terms that you and I use every day when we want a renewed relationship with someone, deeper intimacy with them. It's the words that a child would use toward a father. Put it in modern-day vernacular. Don't be mad at me. Listen to me. Pay attention and share some of your joy with me. Let me see your eyes and let me know that you are listening to me. I remember there were times when I was a young father and my middle daughter, Abby, would want my attention, but I'd be reading or watching a show or whatever, and so she'd jump on my lap and she'd grab my head like this and she'd turn me to her and say, Listen to me. Listen to me. And it was so cute. I thought, well, that's cute. I'm watching the game, you know, and uh, that type of thing. But it was so cute to see her do that. And I think in a very real way, that's what Daniel is doing in a highly relational way here with God. The, The crux of his request, don't miss this, is relational language, which belies the fact that he wants to know God and find his joy and satisfaction in him no matter what. And I would submit to you that that's a praying for par kind of request. And let's be real clear about something. It's not that Daniel wasn't asking for certain objective, circumstantial things here. He he, he was. I mean, woven into all of this relational language is a request that God gets them safely back to Jerusalem and allow them to rebuild their city, their temple, and their lives. He says, let your anger turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, which is Mount Zion, so they could rebuild the city. He says make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate which is like his way of saying hint hint God we don't want it to be this way he says open your eyes and see our desolations act delay not the idea being that they want to go back to their homeland and find success and prosperity so so I'm not saying that Daniel's not presenting needed requests here asking for deliverance in their time of need he is but again see he's doing so And the language of relationship, also saying, I don't want any of this unless my relationship with you, O God, can be renewed and intimate as well. And folks, once you get this, what you realize is that he's not treating God and prayer like a slot machine, like so many Christians do. One of the greatest temptations of our teaching this morning is for some of you to walk out like this. You're going to do this. I know you are. You're going to say, well, Jamie said this. Put the nickel of praise in. Put the nickel of confession in. Pull the level of requests. And out is going to come my jackpot. That's the way some of you think. You're going to see this as some sort of step one, step two, step three. If I do this, God's going to give me what I want because I began with praise and then I confess my sin and he's obligated to give me my requests. If you see it that way, you've missed the whole point. That is not what is going on here in Daniel chapter 9. No, Daniel's treating God as his father, his sovereign Lord, his Savior, he's coming to him with a desire for more intimacy and relationship and it's within that rubric that Daniel asks the request that he asks and the results of this kind of par praying are predictable and wonderful look one last time at Daniel 9 I love this look at verses 20 to 23 he says while I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then he goes on to share a vision with him that we're going to look at next week. When I was up at a friend's place last fall, earlier this fall, studying Daniel for the last time before the series, and I got to this point in chapter 9, actually tears tears come to my eyes. Because I thought to myself, how I long for that kind of wisdom and understanding. How I long to hear a word from God that says you are greatly loved. How I long for his presence in that way. And then it hit me that all of that that Daniel experienced, that wisdom, that understanding, that deep sense of God's presence reminding him how valued he is in his sight came right after this prayer. That can't be a coincidence, folks. It can't be a coincidence that Daniel began his prayer laser beam focus on God and praise, honest with specificity, again, belying, not belying most people's prayers today when it comes to confessing his sin, and then couching his requests in relational language, basically saying, God, I want to know you more than anything else. And the result we see toward the end of this chapter is wisdom, understanding, and a deep sense of God's presence. And i got to tell you, that insight alone has changed the way that I've prayed just in the last two months. In the last two months, I've been following more than I have in the first 30 years this idea of par when it comes to my praying. And all I can tell you is that It works. I don't always get what I want from God I'm not saying that but what I'm telling you is is if you want to draw closer to him in such a way that you might know him in a deeper way try the pattern laid out in Daniel 9 here I remember when I was back in college I just become a Christian and uh, I've shared this with you guys before but I was not a very good high school student to my parents in fact I put them through some very difficult times I was selfish I was angry I was greedy and I didn't know how to relate to anybody around me at all. And I was also somewhat spoiled, though my dad tried not to spoil me, but I grew up in an upper-middle-class town just outside of Cleveland. And the way that I usually approached my dad, because my dad was not very approachable, is that I'd go down to his, his office in the basement. My dad was an attorney, and I'd sit on one side of his desk, and he'd sit on the other, and I'd say, Dad, I want the car. I'm going to Columbus this weekend to watch Ohio State. Or, Dad, I need more money for an allowance. Or, Dad, I want to do this. Or, Dad, I want to do that. And I just sort of set it, and... Many times you said yes or no, and if you said no, I kind of threw a fit and stomped out of his office. Then I became a Christian when I was about 17 years old, and two years later I I started to change. It takes some time for some of us. When I was a freshman in college, home on my, one of my breaks, I went down to my dad's office, and in my usual MO, I just said, Dad, I want to do this. And before giving me the answer, I'll never forget what he did. He just sat there in his lawyer desk and took his glasses off. I don't know if some of you guys ever know this, but I take my glasses off when I want to make a point to you. I learned that from my old man. He took his glasses off, which we knew meant something. And it usually meant he was tired, fatigued, and he was about to say something very difficult to us. And so he took his glasses off and he said, Jamie, he said, may I give you a piece of advice? He said, you always come to me with these things that you want. You just lay it out as if somehow you're owed them. And sometimes they give them to you, and sometimes they not, but you never say thank you, you never say please. And then you leave he said it's pretty soon in life you're gonna to have to learn that how you come to people will determine what you get that the the, the the posture that you take in coming to another person is going to make all the difference on how that conversation goes i gotta tell you folks at that point i had just become a christian and i was starting to soften i was starting to get more tender to relational things of god and i thought my dad's got a point So I think in that moment I said something like, well, can I have the keys, please? You know, or something like that. And he said, there you go. And he gave me the keys. I've never forgotten that point. When I deal with elders now, when I deal with other staff, though I'm a strong leader, I always go into every meeting that I go into thinking, now how am I going to go about this? How am I going to love? How am I going to be truthful? How am I going to go about... The journey that I need to go on in such a way that might be a win win for everybody involved. And what you need to know is I think that's exactly what Daniel's trying to help us do here with God. I think he's trying to help some of us who are relatively sloppy in our praying, very haphazard, just kind of coming to God, call it parachutes prayer, God help, you know, when you're free falling. That's okay. God's a God of grace. He hears those. But he's helping some of us shore up our game, if you will. He's helping some of us be able to shoot par on a regular basis when it comes to praying. Try this this week. Try slowing down and praising God for who he is. Recognize who he is. Recognize what he's done. Maybe read a psalm before you pray. See what that does to your soul. Then try taking a deep moral inventory of your life. Not of the past year. Just try the last 24 hours. Dig deep and admit it before God and ask him to cleanse your soul. And then as you present your request to him, remember the posture that you have and relate to him as your father. Give him your heart Give him your mind. Let him know your desire to know him as you present your requests. I promise you, we'll change the way you pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. You are great and you can be no other. And Lord, you know I recognize that every moment of every day. And God, if I don't miss my guests, there are many, many people here today that deep down desire a more meaningful and rich prayer life when it comes to how they talk to you. God, I just hear it too often to not believe that. And so, God, I pray that as we might have been nudged a little bit off-center today in the way that we pray to you, that God, both in formal ways and informal ways, whether we're in a prayer meeting with other believers or whether we're driving down the road, we might remember what it means to pray par, that we might praise you, that we might admit sin, and that, Lord, when we put requests before you, we would do so as a son who loves his father would do so. And so, God, I thank you that your word is not quiet on this issue, that you've guided us in the right way to approach you. May we see the fruit, the results. Lord, may we get wisdom and understanding, gain that from you. Lord, more than anything, a deep sense of your presence and of your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next.